the only reason anybody should ever run is not to win, but to spread the ideas of liberty. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Hello, hello, my Liberty McFlies, and welcome back to Lions of Liberty, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. This is episode number 204 of this program, and you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discussed today over at lionsofliberty.com slash 204. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible, free market, affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com health. My guest today is an award-winning author, publisher, and a radio and TV host. He's a regular contributor to several weekly and monthly newspapers. He hosts several podcasts and is a regular co-host on Free Talk Live, which of course airs on LRN.FM, one of our great affiliates that carries this very program. He is currently a candidate to be the Libertarian Party's nominee for president in 2016, Daryl Perry. Daryl, are you ready to roar? Always. Excellent. That's what we love to hear. Now, Daryl, before we really get into uh, your current campaign for the presidency of the United States, running as a libertarian, I want our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you just tell us how you first became interested in the ideas of liberty? What first sparked that liberty fire in Daryl Perry? So that's actually a very interesting question. And I love asking people that question when I do interviews. And if you get my book, And I have a book for free, so I'm not trying to sell anything. You can go to a rebelsjourney.com, read the entire thing, but I'll give you the cliff note version. I thought libertarians were evil capitalists that are just trying to get money out of everybody. And yet here you are giving your book away for free. (laughs) Yeah, it's free in audiobook form. I don't think I have the physical, like a PDF. I don't think I have that available for free, but I do have the audio version available for free. And, you know, I'm doing the thing of if you like the one version, then maybe you'll give me money for another version. But I'll I'll give the Cliff Notes version of the book. And again, I'm giving that for free. (laughs) So when I was in high school, I remember going to church and hearing deacons and preachers talk about we need to get back to traditional values. But they never could really explain what traditional values were. And sometime when I was in college... I saw a documentary about the untold history of drugs in America. And that's what I learned that up until like the early 1900s, you could buy cannabis, heroin, and morphine from the Sears and Roebuck catalog. You could actually buy your uh, (laughs) needles from the Sears and Roebuck catalog as well. The horror. Right. And then, (laughs) you know, this thing called the FDA was created and then all these rules and regulations came in place. And I started thinking, wait a second. So like this drug war that I'm told, you know, just say no and all this other stuff, like it's only relatively recently. But like, you know, everybody makes it sound like it's always been that way. No, it's not always been that way. So it was my search for, you know, basically traditional values that led me to the ideas of liberty. So for me, it was studying history, not studying philosophy. Now, as far as actual libertarianism I first heard the term libertarian in 1999 
from a radio host who at the time was a libertarian, both big L and small, named Neil Bortz. And he had a radio show. He was broadcast out of Atlanta, Georgia, and he was syndicated on a station in Birmingham, Alabama, where I was living. And I was working for a company that did traffic reports. And one of the jobs that I had was doing traffic reports midday on this news talk station. And the like late morning guy was Neil Bortz. And so I'd listen to the show between traffic reports, you know, a couple minutes before, a couple minutes after when I wasn't listening to the scanner trying to figure out where all the accidents were. And I heard him talk about this thing called the fair tax, which at the time in 1999, I thought, well, it sounds a lot better than what we've got now. And well, now I think that the fair tax is probably just as bad as what we have now, if not possibly worse, because, well, I live in a state without a regular sales tax. So if you institute this national sales tax thing, then everything I purchase becomes a lot more expensive. Not to mention the whole, you know, every man, woman and child goes on welfare aspect of the fair tax. But it was from there that I found the advocates for self-government, took the world's smallest political quiz, wound up scoring a 7,100. So right on the border between conservative and libertarian, but all the way up at the top on the economics. So like I was there economically, but some of the social issues, I wasn't quite libertarian yet. And I take it you probably uh, you shifted a bit from that border <laughs> since that time. Yes. Yes. Uh, now, based on the world's smallest political quiz, I'm a 100-100. There's a what I feel to be a much better quiz called Quiz 2D. And I score all the way at the very top of theirs as well, uh, marked as a radical libertarian. Uh-oh. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a minute, because as you know, libertarians hold a somewhat wide range of views. It might not seem like a wide range of views to non-libertarians, but I'd say libertarian views on the role of government range roughly from sort of constitutional government to minarchism to your preferred view of government, which is essentially that there should be none, anarchism. So how did you come to uh, believe that anarchism specifically is the correct path? And more importantly in there, maybe, can you just define what anarchism is to you? Because even along that track, we have some varying degrees of opinion on just how that is defined. Right. And I actually don't use the term anarchist or anarchism to describe my beliefs. Okay, I stand corrected then. I will use the term voluntarist okay. uh, to describe my beliefs, but I will not eschew the term anarchist. But where I come from is looking at things of everything should be completely consensual. The lie that we're told is that governments exist with the consent of the governed. And, well, if that's what sort of society we want to have, then that's the society that I envision for everybody. So what I would love to see is a separation of geography and state to where you and I, in theory, Mark, could be next door neighbors and have completely separate governance over top of us. And then the varying governing bodies that we either agree or don't agree to would have agreements with one another of how to handle sort of uh, intergovernmental disputes, if you will, or disputes between people that are under different governing agencies. And it's not unheard of. There were polycentric civilizations that existed in Ireland. There were polycentric civilizations that existed in the Middle East for a long time. You've probably heard of Zomia, 
which is a part of Southeast Asia where the people are basically ungoverned by the recognized state governments because they're just so remote from any other portion of, you know, quote unquote civilization to where the recognized state entities that claim that territory never really make it out there. So nobody even knows that they exist. And that's really what I would love to see. If the United States federal government were so small that nobody knew it existed, I probably would not want it to completely abolish. If the government for the state of New Hampshire were so small that it did not interfere in anybody's life, that they did not hold a monopoly on the purchase of uh, liquor in the state, if they did not claim that every time I buy gasoline that I have to give them some money, then I probably would not be opposed to the existence of the state of New Hampshire or the state of Vermont or, you know, fill in the blank government that currently exists to which I do not consent. So what I foresee and what a lot of other uh, voluntarists foresee and a lot of anarchists as well is a society to where people are actually giving consent to whatever governing body exists. Okay, so you're not actually opposed to, say, the concept of governance or government if we take it in the sense that people can form governments based on their own private property, based on their own agreements with certain entities, but the problem comes in when they try to force that upon others. Was that basically sum up your view? Anybody into your little group. Gotcha. Okay. So part of your platform, however, in running for the Libertarian nomination, one of your main platform points is that you would like to see the federal government of the United States abolished. And correct me if I'm wrong there. So what's your concept with that? Because, I mean, as far as I can tell, now, I'm sure we would agree on all the problems with the federal government, the war on drugs, the foreign occupation, all the terrible things that are done by the federal government. However, if we're talking about people consenting to be governed, I would say that a majority of people in the United States do actually want the United States government. I I think people that don't seem to be a small minority. If not, we probably wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. So if you advocate to abolish the United States government, are you actually infringing on the rights of others to make that happen if they actually want that United States government? Does that make sense? The question completely makes sense. And if you base or put any credence in public opinion polls, which you know some people do, some people don't. The ones that I've seen show that 62% of Americans say that the U.S. federal government does not have their consent. So the numbers that I'm seeing is that a vast majority of Americans don't like what the federal government is doing. Now, they might not want the thing to completely go away, but they will say that they don't consent to what is being done. And I see the United States federal government as the world's largest terrorist organization. And I know a lot of people will wind up being shocked and appalled at me saying that. But if you look up the Merriam-Webster definition of terrorism, the United States federal government fits that definition to a T. And can you detail a little bit more about you know that specific definition and why you feel that the United States government is essentially a terrorist organization, as you have called it? Yeah, give me one second to actually pull up the Merriam-Webster definition of terrorist, or actually terrorism is the term that they have defined on their website. The definition of terrorism, the use of violent acts to frighten the people in an area as a way of trying to achieve a political goal. Now, to me, that describes everything that the United States federal government does, both 
domestic and international to where you've got the U.S. federal government uh, doing these supposed targeted drone strikes that wind up killing 90% of the people that are identified or identified as civilians. And that's really a huge number when you consider how broad the definition of suspected terrorist is in these countries where they're doing drone strikes to where any male over the age of uh, somewhere between 12 to 18, depending on the day of the week. And, you know, like every male over the age of, you know, basically what they would consider fighting age is considered suspected terrorist. Everybody else is considered a civilian. So basically, you know, the elderly would be considered civilians. Females are considered civilians. And then all children are considered civilians. So 90% of the people that are killed in these targeted drone strikes, meaning that they know who they're killing or they think they know who they're killing, 90% of the time they are not killing who they think they're killing. They're killing innocent people. So that by definition is terrorism because they're bringing about fear. They're frightening people trying to achieve a political goal. The political goal that the U.S. government's trying to achieve in Pakistan and Afghanistan is we want you to stop being mad at us. So we're going to bomb you until you're not mad at us anymore. And the global war on terror is nothing more than a drunken bar fight with missiles instead of beer bottles and chairs. Because nobody remembers who threw the first punch. Everybody thinks somebody else threw the first punch. But everybody's just going to keep punching because, well, the fighting is going on. I'm not going to stop swinging my fist until everybody else does. But that's not how you win a drunken bar fight. And that's not how you win a war against an act of people hate us. So let's kill them more. The only way to win is not to play the game. And then let's look domestically. So you already mentioned uh, the drug war, which is basically a war on 300 million Americans and a plant. And then you've got uh, all of the other stuff to where they're trying to get everybody to be so scared about some possible terrorists that nobody wants to use encryption. And they're actually trying to say that everybody that uses encryption might be a terrorist. So right there, people are, well, I, I don't want to be classified as a terrorist because America. <laughs> and do you remember when George W. Bush said, you're either with us or you're with the terrorist? All too well. And a lot of people, especially people that were opposed to war, wound up not going to the anti-war rallies anymore. So you know, like the anti-war movement pretty much died because people were scared to be labeled as a terrorist because they did not like something that their government was doing. Well, that right there just shows you that it's the government that's acting like the terrorists. They're using fear or acts of violence or threats of acts of violence to frighten people to achieve a political goal. So what is your goal with this candidacy? Because obviously you're running for a federal office and yet you don't believe that the federal government should exist, at least not as presently constituted. So uh, what actually inspired you to run for president and to do so? Even among the Libertarian Party, I think many people would call you a radical. Oh, I, I'm definitely a radical libertarian. Uh, the reason and the only reason that anybody should ever run for office, for any office, regardless of the political party, the only reason anybody should ever run is not to win, but to spread the ideas of liberty. 
And I realized that, you know, not everybody agrees with the ideas of liberty. So they're not really my target audience with this statement. So, you know, like I would not encourage Bernie Sanders. Yes, Bernie, spread the ideas of liberty because Bernie (laughs) doesn't know the ideas of liberty. But Bernie's trying to spread a message. And, you know, other people that are running, some of them are trying to spread a message. Most of them are trying to win a race or, you know, wind up coming in second so that they can influence some kind of policy and like a big government direction. But anybody that agrees with the ideas of liberty, they should only ever run for office to spread the ideas of liberty. Winning could possibly wind up being the worst thing that could happen. Well, why do you think that? Because what would happen if you just woke up one day and you not only won the libertarian nomination, but somehow you captured the hearts and minds of the American public and they went and had an elected Daryl Perry as president? I mean, what would some of the first acts you would take considering your stance on the legitimacy of the United States government? Very first thing I would do is pardon Private Manning. The second thing I would do is pardon Ross Albrecht. The third thing I would do is drop all charges against Edward Snowden and allow him safe return back to the United States if he wanted to return home. I would then give a blanket pardon to all nonviolent federal drug offenders. And after that blanket pardon, I would give another blanket pardon to every nonviolent federal offender who had no identifiable victim, meaning everybody else that's in prison for whistleblowing or anything else to where, you know, they didn't use force and they didn't harm anyone in any kind of manner. And from there, we would wind up starting the process of bringing home all of the troops from the 900 plus bases around the world, immediately ceasing all combat operations around the globe. And all right, then we can start working with Congress to get rid of taxation, cut all federal spending and eliminate all forms of coercive taxation to where if anything exists at the federal level, it's because people are paying for it because they want to see it happen. Let's talk about that a little bit more, because that is under your statements of of principles on your campaign website. One of the things you say is that all coercive forms of taxation should be eliminated and government programs should be funded voluntarily. But how do you see a transition from this to that? Because obviously the system we have now is completely in the opposite direction. You have no choice about what programs to fund, whether or not to fund them, what money goes where, if you agree with a program or not. These are not options right now. So how would you actually transition more, not only the system, but sort of how people view government and how people view the system as it currently is into something more voluntary as you strive for? Right. So. Pretty much every time I explain this to somebody that is not fully on board, they'll ask, well, what about fill in the blank? Well, do you like that? Yes, I do. Okay, then you could give money to it. And generally, the biggest thing is, what about the military? Well, if you want to pay military people to go do military things, you can donate to that. I personally like schools and libraries, so I would donate to that. And I kind of like some of the stuff that NASA does. So, you know, right now, NASA claims that every man, woman and child pays. It's only like three dollars a year. Okay, here's three dollars. Keep doing spacey stuff. And people would wind up giving money to things that they like. It's, you know, one way that your local grocer stays open. Not that people just go randomly hand the local grocer money without getting something in return, they go buy their groceries there. But there are a lot of charities 
local charities that people wind up donating money to because they like the things that the local charities do. And the federal government or actually any government that exists should operate in the same way to where they're only providing things that people actually want and people are actually giving money to do. The way it operates now is they say, here's this service that we're providing and every man, woman and child must pay whether they use the service or not. Uh, One of the best examples is local schools to where every man, woman and child has to wind up paying for the school, whether they use that school or not. But there are a lot of private schools that people will just donate money to because they like the way that school operates a lot better than they like the way the government-run school operates. Well, Daryl, obviously, uh, one objection you'll get to some of this is, you know, what about poor people? What about people that just can't afford schools? And let's say, you know, even with your charity system, your voluntary system, there's people that just can't even afford to send their children to any school because maybe nobody has donated to a school in that area. I mean, how would you address areas of concern that people might have when they hear what you're saying and might even like it in concept, but then they think, well, I'm a poor person. I'm going to end up with no education in this kind of system. That's actually not true. If you go back and you look at how education was run before the Prussian education system was started in the United States, the uh, poor people, actually, they did have schools that they could go to. Most of the parents would wind up not sending their children after a certain age because, well, it's a lot more beneficial for the family farm for little Timmy to be out in the fields working the crops than it is for him to go to school. So, you know, you might have some of that happen again in some of the more rural agricultural areas, but you would have schools that would wind up being privately funded but open to the public to where anybody in the area that has a child between the age of, you know, 6 and 18 or whatever, you know, fill in the blank ages that they would open it up to, they would say anybody in this area can send their children to this school. There are things online right now that are absolutely free, uh, such as the Khan Academy, where you can go learn almost anything you want from the Khan Academy. MIT has a bunch of their classes online for free. So you can get basically an Ivy League education at home for free, aside from whatever it costs you to wind up connecting to the internet, but most people are connecting to the internet anyway. You know, it's funny, you hear candidates like Bernie Sanders talking about free education, and what he really means, of course, is coercive government funding education, coercively, of course. And the funny thing is, like you just said out there, anybody motivated enough today can go and take MIT's entire course load if they want and not pay a dime. So it's really interesting when you point things like that out because you know so many people get wrapped up in theory and they forget that we can actually, we don't even necessarily need theory for everything because there are actual real world examples of certain things. And that, that point about education that you pointed out just there is one of them. Yeah. Daryl, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into some of the objections that you get along the campaign trail to your stance. But first, I need to take a minute out to let my listeners know about a great alternative to their current healthcare paradigm, that being Health Excellence Select. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I purchased my own health insurance. So personally, I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. 
My deductible more than doubled, my premium shot through the roof, and I'm just sitting here thinking, what am I actually getting for this? I'm a healthy guy, I don't go to the doctor, I really hadn't even been to a doctor for any major medical problem in years and years and years, so why would I spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month and then have to spend six or $8,000 in deductibles before I even see a dime of coverage for my healthcare? It just didn't add up, and it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up for most of us. But luckily, there is an alternative out there now. It's an alternative known as health sharing. And health sharing is simply awesome. (laughs) I've gotten paid for every single medical bill I've submitted in full, 100%. This is not a joke. After I spend $500... I get everything else back. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch. They'll do all the work for you. They will find your doctors. They will set appointments for you. They'll provide you 24-7 access to doctors via Skype so you don't even need to go to a doctor or pay a dime half the time. Health Excellence Select is truly revolutionary and you guys are doing yourselves a disservice if you do not look into this amazing alternative to your standard corporatized Obamacare health insurance. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health, or if you're ready to sign up, you can directly call my representative, Jeff Cantor, at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Now, Daryl, I'm curious, what are some of the other common objections that you get out there on the campaign trail or just talking about this stuff in general? And then, you know, there's always the question about what about the roads? And I don't really care. Somebody will figure it out that there are people smarter than me that figure stuff out all the time. And, you know, there are people that run businesses, really big businesses that they want to make sure that they keep having customers. And you can't really have customers come to your business without this flat surface called a road. So the business owners would be motivated to make sure that roads continue existing just as much as you and I would be motivated to make sure that roads continued to exist so that we could go places. So somebody would figure out a way to get it done without stealing money from people. So you wouldn't uh, go and just start ripping out the interstate highways uh, as part of your administration then, I take it. No, that would <laughs> that, that would not make sense at all. Why spend money to rip something up that's already there? Right. And of course, I'm being silly here, but let, let's get into a few more kind of tricky issues that are, I think, even among libertarians, there's a lot of disagreement on. And I just want to hit on a few that you mentioned on your campaign website. And I, I want to first start with abortion because I that's an issue that, heck, I avoided it for nearly 180 episodes of this podcast before I even mentioned the word, mostly because it is a difficult subject, I think, regardless of your view on it, uh, especially when it relates to how the government should interact with individuals who make that decision. So uh, I'm curious what your personal view on abortion is and then how that might tie into your view of government. Personally, I find abortion to be an absolutely horrific thing, and I would never personally fund anyone having one. That said, I also would not use lethal force to prevent a woman from expelling a child from her uterus. So I don't think that government should have any role in the matter at all, whether it be to you know prevent someone from having an abortion or to encourage someone to have an abortion or to fund having an abortion. The government should play no role at all. Now, many libertarians base a lot of their views on the concept of property rights. And there's one area where libertarians have a major disagreement in many ways about what constitutes property, and that's intellectual property, uh, copyright, trademark, patents, and um, you know, 
what is your view on that? I mean, is there any legitimacy to the concepts of perhaps copyright or trademark and that sort of thing? Or is it just that more of the fact that our modern coercive government is skewing things in such a way that we can't even tell right from wrong? There might possibly be some kind of, you know, quote unquote legitimacy to allowing someone a certain amount of time with an idea before putting it completely in the public domain. But the way copyright and patent laws currently are, it's completely flawed to where right now there are people that have been dead for 69 years and their works are still being protected by copyright, meaning that somebody that did not create the thing is getting royalties for the thing. And that, in my mind, is absolutely absurd. If copyright is to exist, then on the day of death, at the latest, whatever the thing that was created should enter the public domain. However, I think that whether or not something enters the public domain or remains you know, copyrighted or under some sort of uh, limited use clause should really be up to the author or the creator of the thing. Now, I am an author, and I had mentioned at the beginning that I'm giving away a book. And, well, that's because I think that copyright is absolutely flawed. There's nothing existing on Earth right now that is going to prevent someone from reading what I've written and then, you know, thinking up some sort of derivation of what I have written and then using the derivation. However, copyright and patent laws try to infringe on that to where we have a conversation, Mark, and then we both come up with an idea later today. Whoever the first of us to write it down on a piece of paper and then send that piece of paper to the federal government with some sort of uh, other piece of paper and some amount of money we wind up becoming the owner of that idea. And I'm using owner in air quotes there for anybody that uh, can't see me, which is basically everybody. So you cannot actually own an idea. You can have an idea. You can share an idea. You can write an idea on paper and you could, in theory, claim ownership on the way the words were written in paper. But the idea itself does not belong to you. To claim that you own the idea is to claim that you own the neurons and synapses in everybody's brain that has ever read the idea, that's ever thought of the idea, that's ever repeated the idea to someone else. So you have people, Ayn Rand is a perfect example when she was alive. She would have people basically sign off on some sort of clause saying that, you know, I'm coming to your lecture and I will not discuss what I hear at this lecture with anybody. So she was trying to claim ownership over ideas and enforce that on other people of you are not allowed to share what you have learned here with anybody because this is my idea. And I think that Ayn Rand would really be flabbergasted to see how many objectivists there actually are, especially considering that she didn't want anybody discussing the ideas. So, you know, I really do think that it's absolutely flawed the way it's currently put in practice. Now, if you go back and you look at the original copyright and the original patent law in the United States, the creator of the thing or the author of whatever 
they claimed, you know, basically the ownership over that for a period of it was either seven or 14 years, depending on if it was something that was copyrighted or patented. And that could wind up being extended, I believe, once. And then after that, it became public domain. Now, there were some British authors that weren't happy because the original U.S. copyright law did not apply to any work that was created outside of the United States of America. So people that were British, they were complaining about the quote-unquote cheap American knockoffs where basically it was somebody that would hand copy a version of whatever the British uh, play or book or whatever it was, and then they would make copies and sell it. And this was a time when making copies was nowhere near as easy as going to your Kinko's or Staples with either a disc or a physical copy of something and saying, print me off a thousand. And now with digital stuff, you know, Making copies is a whole lot easier to where, you know, it takes seconds in a lot of cases to right-click, copy file, right-click, paste. So copying is a whole lot easier. And as Nina Paley tells us in the catchy little jingle, copying is not theft. If I steal your bicycle, you have to take the bus. But if I just copy it, there's one for each of us. Man, if only we could just copy each other's bikes. And the great thing is we actually have this technology. We have 3D printing. We have methods to do a lot of the things that people used to think are crazy. Um, and you have 3D printers that can print other 3D printers. <laughs> it's like an endless cycle. It's like Inception. Daryl, I'm curious what kind of response. I know you've been out there campaigning. What has the response been to your campaign within the Libertarian Party? I know that you definitely have a different message than we hear from the likes of Austin Peterson, from the likes of Gary Johnson, from the guys considered the quote-unquote, as mainstream, I guess, as you can get within the Libertarian Party, the guys that are being labeled as the frontrunners. What sort of response have you seen about your campaign within the party? Well, let me first sort of briefly explain the response from among other candidates, because there have been a couple of other... That might be a more interesting one. (laughs) ...that have thanked me for speaking the way I do. Because it's allowed them to sort of, you know, like make their message a little more radical libertarian without sounding like the crazy guy on stage. (laughs) But then there are other people that have attacked me and demonized me. There have been people within the party, people that have elected offices in various state uh, libertarian parties that have not only said that I should not be allowed to debate, but said that I should not even be allowed to be a member of the party. So there are people calling for my complete ouster from the party. And I think that, you know, that's kind of sad that you've got libertarians trying to expel other libertarians because someone happens to be more libertarian than they think is acceptable. Oh, I agree. And I mean, Austin Peterson has had this same issue with people trying to not allow him into debates and saying they want to expel him from the party. And and you and Austin Peterson probably couldn't have more opposed views within this libertarian sphere. At the same time, I want to see you two debate. I want to see this conversation occur within the party because I think that debate and conversation is what's healthy. It's what enables us to sort of advance the ideas and play this stuff out. So I think we need as many voices in there as possible, especially when the voices diverge and especially when they're presenting the ideas of liberty in a different way. 
Yeah, certainly. And I look forward to all of the other debates that I will be participating in in the next you know, upcoming six weeks or so coming up on the uh, national convention in Orlando at the end of May. And we look forward to seeing you there. Daryl, before I let you go, a couple things. First of all, I want you to just give your final pitch out there to any liberty lovers, liberty leaning folks, liberty activists out there that why they should look into your candidacy a bit more and possibly support you for the libertarian nomination. And then before you, we sign off, just feel free to give people a run through of uh, everything you've done, your books, uh, your podcast. I know there's you got a lot going on, so feel free to plug away on everything. Yeah, so the podcast, I do a daily newscast, a daily seven-day-per-week, five-minute newscast. That's FPP Radio News. I do a thrice-weekly half-hour podcast. That's Peace, Love, Liberty Radio. Comes out when I'm not traveling, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. If I'm traveling on a Friday, well, sorry, you miss a couple Friday episodes here and there. There's also the FPP Freedom Minute, which has been going for almost five years. It'll be five years in August. I also publish a monthly newspaper, FPP News. As far as I know, it's the only newspaper in the world that is published under a copyright license, meaning that there is no copyright on it. Feel free to copy it, do whatever it is that you want with the paper, and spread the ideas of liberty using the paper. As far as the campaign, one of the goals that I have is to run the most libertarian presidential campaign in history to promote the ideas of liberty as boldly and as often as possible, and to give as many people as possible the opportunity to vote for an actual libertarian in November of 2016. So please go to com. That's the website, D-A-R-R-Y-L-W-P-E-R-R-Y.com. Donate. If you are hoping that you can use a credit card or write me a check, sorry, you're out of luck. I'm not taking legal tender. I am only taking alternative currencies and precious metals. Now, if you've got some airline miles or hotel points that you want to donate, that will definitely help with travel and lodging. The uh, numbers for that are on the donate page. Again, DarylWPerry.com. All right, Daryl Perry. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Daryl. And I wish you the best of luck because I think it's important to have a good range of voices in this libertarian race. And like you said, I think the most important thing we can do, even when running for political office, even if we also want to win, the number one priority should be spreading the message and advancing this conversation. That's why I do this show. That's why you're running for office. So keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Mark. Take care, Daryl. All righty, folks. I hope you enjoyed my discussion today with libertarian presidential candidate Daryl Perry, and it was great to get his perspective on things. And just like I said with Austin Peterson when I interviewed him back in episode number 197, you can find that, of course, at the archive, lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. I do believe that Daryl Perry is a valuable voice that should be a part of this conversation. And it's interesting that you have two guys here who, at least within the, uh, the broad spectrum of beliefs within libertarianism, they really couldn't be more diametrically opposed. You know, Austin Peterson is an ardent minarchist and firmly believes in that stance of minimal government for some specific tasks, whereas um, Daryl Perry is kind of the opposite spectrum of that, and he's a a full voluntarist and doesn't believe really in any sort of form of uh, at least coercive government. As we talked about, he does believe in government and governance of all sorts of kinds. Uh, The problems with that only tend to come about when, you know, people that form governments tend to go outside their government and start to 
enforce their beliefs on others. Now, this is a tricky area, and uh, because of the trickiness of that area, that's why I personally wouldn't really support a political position of saying we'd like to abolish the U.S. federal government. Now, the, the reason I say that is not because I do not see all the terrible and horrible things that the U.S. government does. The U.S. government initiates the war on drugs, the biggest affront to individual rights that I can even think of, uh, and initiates aggressive wars all over the world. It initiates human rights violations of all sorts of kinds, both overseas and at home. No doubt about it. However, we can't look at the U.S. government as sort of a foreign occupying force. We have to realize that the U.S. government sort of does exist in many ways at the behest of our fellow neighbors, at the behest of our fellow man. I'm sorry, despite what Daryl claims about some polls, and I'm sure there is a high level of mistrust of the government, but as from what I can tell, it really does seem that most people do support the existence of the U.S. government. They do support the concept. And you can't really just beat people over the head by saying abolish, abolish, abolish before you've really gotten to some of the core issues. And I really think that the core issues are really those that directly affect individual rights. And I really think we need to focus on the concepts of individual rights, on the philosophy, on the beliefs of our fellow man before we can go advocating for a policy such as the direct abolishment of the U.S. government because we we have to have more of a platform than abolish, abolish, abolish. What we need to do is put forward a philosophy that respects individual rights. And to do that, we need to have certain political goals and certain ways to focus our energy politically. And there are many areas where I think we can, can abolish some things overnight. We can abolish the war on drugs overnight. Yep, abolish that right now. We can abolish the patent system. I truly believe we can abolish the patent system overnight because patents really at their core are an injustice. They are a violation of the rights of other people. Now, some things like copyright are a little bit dicier. Uh, I do believe our, our current application of them is certainly wrong, but there are ways that copyright and that sort of thing could be sort of, uh, you know, regenerated in a free market sense if we had a different system. And, and that's why it's important to sort of pinpoint the greatest injustices, in my view, and focus on them. So I would end the war on drugs tomorrow. That would be part of my presidential campaign. But ending the U.S. government wouldn't be, because that's something that, A, is going to sort of turn people off to your campaign and not really allow you to listen to a lot of the rest of what you're saying when it is really good, because as you heard, Daryl Perry is very knowledgeable on these subjects, and he can speak very well about the ideas of liberty. Uh, so it's a very important conversation to have. I just personally believe we need to focus the conversation on specific issues and not just say, abolish. Abolish this. I wouldn't even say just abolish the Federal Reserve, because even saying something like that doesn't really get the point across. It doesn't really portray the positive of what you would have replace it. That's just my view, but I was glad to get Daryl Perry's own view out there. Like I said, I've had a lot of the presidential candidates on, a lot of the libertarian presidential candidates, Austin Peterson, John McAvee, my good man Steve Carbell before he dropped out, and uh, we're hoping to keep this conversation going. It's only a few more weeks until the Libertarian Party convention. So at some point here, pretty soon we're going to have just one guy to focus on. So I want to get as many of these voices in uh, while we can, while this nominating process is still going on. Thank you guys for tuning in today. Thank you for tuning in every day or at least three days a week when a new episode of this program is available. Of course, there are so many ways you can find the show. We publish every Monday and Wednesday and then Friday with our Felony Friday. You can find 
over at lionsofliberty.com, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, a brand new episode for you guys. Uh, You can also, of course, subscribe on Stitcher, subscribe on iTunes. If you want to join the conversation with us, why don't you head on over to the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just type Lions of Liberty Forum in your search bar on Facebook. That's our private group. Request to join. And as long as you don't look like a total spam bot, I'll let you right in to join this conversation with us. If you are a fan of the show, I would ask you to head over to iTunes, head over to Stitcher, whatever platforms you use to listen to the show on, leave us a five-star rating, leave us a great review, share it with your friends, because these are the ways that you guys can really help us expand the show without spending a dime yourselves. Of course, you can spend dimes yourself by shopping through our Amazon link, lionsofliberty.com slash Amazon, or shopping uh, through any of our sponsors, Health Excellence, select lionsofliberty.com slash health. You can also get 10% off your entire order at libertymaniacs.com by using the discount code lionsofliberty. And we'll see you again this Wednesday with another episode. Until then, folks. Live long and live free.